Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, it's election day. You probably knew that already. So we decided on election day, rather than covering a moving target, because obviously as the day goes along here, we don't really know what's uh, happening. Uh, Although we do know certain things that are happening that raise our interest, just in terms of uh, what goes on at the polls, but we don't really know what's going on. We thought what we'd like to do is have a conversation really about how people are prepared to be citizens, how people become citizens, how people are educated. This is a conversation that's been going on in this country since at least 1778, when Thomas Jefferson put forth really what some people consider to be kind of a seminal document on this. He was actually revising the laws of Virginia, I believe. It was Bill 79, a bill for the more general diffusion of knowledge. And in it, Jefferson kind of articulated what he thought people needed to know and why he thought they needed to know it. He says, whereas it appeareth that however certain forms of government are better calculated than others to protect individuals in the free exercise of their natural rights and are at the same time themselves better guarded against degeneracy, yet experience hath shown that even under the best forms, those entrusted with power have in time and by slow operations perverted it into tyranny. And he just goes on to say that the most effectual means of preventing that kind of thing would be to illuminate, as far as is practicable, the minds of the people at large, and more especially to give them knowledge of those facts which history exhibiteth. Uh, that possessed thereby of the experience of other ages and countries, they may be enabled to know ambition under all of its shapes. Blah, 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 blah. I don't mean to blah, blah, Thomas Jefferson. but uh, And in fact, Jefferson being the complicated guy that he was, as we went a little further in time, it turned out that some of his ideas about who actually was fit to lead us and whose ambitions we needed to check uh, were maybe a little less democratic than we might hope that they would be. But since then, since 1778, it's been a really important question. How do you educate people in the, in the exercise of their democracy? And who does it? And what should that curriculum be? How do you tell people what it means to be a citizen? Um, that's what we're going to talk about here today. Now, we have a somewhat unusual situation. We have, you know, a guest that we really didn't think that we could book, but I think he's about to join us in a, in a minute or two who probably has uh, stronger feelings uh, on this day about how people exercise their franchise than just about anybody. Uh, we'll tell you about him in just a second. Also with us in studio, uh, Walter Woodward. We wouldn't dream of doing the show without uh, our state historian. He's a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. John Tully, a professor of history and social studies coordinator at Central Connecticut State University. He's the president of the Connecticut Council for Social Studies and the author, and this is dear to my heart, of Ireland and Irish Americans, 1932 to 45, The Search for Identity. Actually, we're still searching for our identity. And True. we'll also be talking a little bit later to Chris Doyle by phone, director of global studies at Watkins and School. And we wanted to talk to a student, maybe a student who's actually voting for the first time in this election. And so uh, that will be James Ward. Uh, he's a student at the Watkinson School. But already today, in a way, if you wanted to teach social studies with a living tapestry in front of you, you've got an election day and you've got Hartford where in the early morning, it was discovered that people were not able to vote at uh, several. We, we still don't even quite know how many polling sites were compromised in this way. The voting lists were not delivered. People showed up. 
the poll workers maybe weren't fully informed about what to do. They should be able actually, I mean, since 2000, basically the rule has been that nobody who wants to vote, who shows up claiming to be able to vote, should be turned away not having done something, whether it's an affidavit or a provisional ballot or the actual ability to vote. But anyway, poll workers seem not to know about that. Uh, in some cases, some people were turned away. So we've got a problem on our hands, which is for about an hour um, or a little bit more. Here in Hartford, people were not able to vote who thought they would be able to vote. So then what happens? Well, if you're a social studies teacher, uh, you could, in fact, look at this whole process, watch this whole process unfold, because uh, now what's happened is right now, even as I'm speaking, the Democratic Party is in court. They are at Hartford Superior Court seeking the assistance of a judge. So now we've got another branch of government involved here seeking the assistance of a judge to keep the polling places open for a compensatory, compensatory amount of time at the day. So uh, at the end of the day. So if you were heading to the polls this morning, you couldn't get in, you couldn't vote. Uh, maybe you'll be able to vote on the other side of that. Of course, that opens up another Pandora's box because people in that kind of situation, and we had almost an identical situation in Bridgeport at the end of Election Day four years, years ago. In that situation, a thousand conspiracy theories bloom. People see, see something going on with the voting process. They think something's wrong. They see extraordinary measures being taken. Uh, they see uh, one side going to court and getting some kind of injunctive relief. Uh, they think that there's something sketchy going on. They think there's something wrong with the ballots. Uh, and so, I mean, really, if you follow all this stuff on the Internet, there's been four years uh, of conversations about the last election. There are a lot of people who just never accepted those results, felt it was a close election, felt the situation in Bridgeport was was dubious at best. So as we go along here today, we're going to talk to all of these people because the other thing that's happening is that there's a conversation, a specific conversation going on here in Connecticut and to a certain degree nationally about the teaching of social studies. Um, and, and so we're going to explore that whole thing. Now, I've been sort of vamping a little bit here, kind of watching the phone line, but uh, I, I think uh, I better throw it to one I guess because I'm getting tired of listening to myself talk. But Walter, as you listen to me introduce this in my fumbling way, I, I think you'd confirm that you go, you go back to Jefferson and you go forward. There's always been a question about public ed education in America and its role in the democracy. What is public education supposed to do? And, and how, how do we parse the difference between simply training and indoctrinating? You want people to ask questions, but maybe not necessarily uh, give them all of the answers. Sure. It, 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 Politicians and Americans have agreed from the beginning that there is something about Republican government that whose protection requires an informed citizenry. Mm -hmm. But how do you create this informed citizenry? It, one person's indoctrination is another person's education, and that's that's where it becomes really problematic. We agree, I think, fundamentally that a constitutional representative democracy – brings with it certain rights and responsibilities that citizens need to be aware of and to act upon. And that's where social studies education can provide a foundation for engaged citizenry and get us away from the sort of Jerry Springer politics of the last 40 years. And, you know, John Tully, in a way, to teach social studies, to teach these issues, in a way, they, they dovetail with 
the ideas that were present at the formation of the American experiment, right? We had sort of a, a Lockean vision where uh, man's reason was going to be empowered. The whole notion was people had the ability, normal average people who weren't kings or nobles, had the ability to apprehend their own circumstances and also to derive fundamental truths uh, from their circumstances. So when you, I assume when you think about a social studies curriculum, one of the first things you have to think about is what people were thinking about in 1776. Right. In, in some ways... It- that basic sense that, that the power to understand our situation and the, the right and the responsibility to, to, to affect change if change is needed or to, to participate in this democracy is available to everyone. Now, early on, of course, they had very different notions about who would be in the electorate. Uh, and those struggles have been uh, very intense and very important struggles. And they continue in many ways today. So so the basic sense of the importance of understanding the world, being able to, um, to, to make educated um, decisions about our lives and where we need to go is an important part of democracy. The struggle over the years since, that, since Jefferson's time is who gets to do that. Uh, and the, the basis of social studies education is that everybody has that, that right to be a part of it, and we need to give them the skills and the power uh, to exercise those abilities. But then the question becomes, uh, and I'm going to stay with you for a second, John, who gets to be a part of that conversation about what, what the social studies curriculum is? Because obviously the way it's taught uh, is at, le- at least potentially has the ability to condition the thinking of the people who are receiving the teaching. Yeah. Poli- you know, history is a political act. Uh, doing, you know, thinking about our past is, um, is, is a process by which we, we assign values to things. Um, the, the overall process of who should be a part of, who should have input into what social studies education should be as wide as possible. All of us, in the same way that we have rights and responsibilities for democracy, have rights and responsibilities in terms of, of, of educating our youth to the possibilities. And that's why one of the things that, that's so um, exciting about what's happening in social studies now is we're moving away from this sense of here are, here's a list of things you need to know. Here are a list of things you need to remember. But here's how you can ask questions as a citizen. Here's how you can evaluate evidence. Here's how you can make your voice heard. And that doesn't depend on what your political stance is. It doesn't depend on uh, what, you know, how you want to see the world move forward. It depends on your ability to understand evidence make sense of that, communicate it, and understand other people's arguments. Let me, let me just go over to Chris Doyle for a second here over at Watkinson, uh, where I think they're having a pretty exciting Global Studies Day uh, today. Uh, but Chris Doyle, I don't know, is, is, is there a way that you could give me a case study, a, case, a specific uh, historic uh, or contemporary issues case example in which you as a teacher have to explore that difference between teaching people to think as opposed to teaching them some received set of truths? Yeah, especially as a public school teacher, Colin, uh, where I I didn't have as much control over the curriculum. Uh, This often comes up in, uh, for instance, teaching the American Civil Rights Movement. I think most teachers uh, do a very good job teaching the period from the Brown v. Board decision in the 1950s, 1954, through the Civil Rights Acts of the Johnson administration in 64 and 65. Uh, we don't tend to teach the second part of the civil rights movement, which is a much more confusing and violent story. Uh, we don't teach the long, hot summers of race riots in the late 60s and early 70s. 
Um, locally, Hartford had a really bad riot in 1970 that, that kind of polarized the racial dynamics of the city. We don't teach Supreme Court decisions like Milliken v. Bradley, which basically said that urban school districts could not be um, integrated by busing from uh, a district in the urban uh, inner city into the suburbs. And we don't teach about the destruction of militant civil rights groups like the Black Panthers. And I, I think to, to make an informed decision on progress in civil rights and where we are now, uh, we have to move beyond the, the comforting story of, of the triumph of the, the black civil rights movement to, to a more complicated picture that includes this other history. You know, Walter, in a way, that sort of gets back to a vision of history. There's a quote in my mind, which I will now, A, misquote, and probably B, misattribute. Uh, but um, I think it was from Will Durant, and I think he said, you know, something to the effect that history often seems like a river of, of blood and wars and kings and government actions and laws passed and verdicts rendered. Uh, but the other part of history is lived up on the banks of that river where just average people are living. And, and to Chris's point, you could learn Brown v. Board of Education and, if you knew nothing else, conclude matter settled, right? It's important to teach history more a as, in fact, this moving experience, this experience that doesn't necessarily resolve itself. Absolutely. It, it, the thing that makes history so important is that all of us live as as uh, fish in that river of history. We are people who are affected by the water that was upstream a long time ago, and we are swimming toward an uncertain future. I on, like on, that, on that beautiful note, uh, I'm going to uh, invite somebody else to uh, join our conversation, somebody who's very interested in history as it unfolds and the citizenship of people. Uh, President Obama is joining us right now. Mr. President, welcome to our show. Colin, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, 228 years from the Declaration of Independence, we're still having arguments about who gets to vote and specifically whether a citizen who meets all the requirements of voting can be turned away at the polls. Sometimes this happens for reasons of incompetence, sometimes for reasons of villainy. Uh, frequently, the outcome is the same. But as you're watching this Election Day, I assume this is something you're watching. Well, it is. And one of the reasons I wanted to call in in Connecticut, I, my understanding is that we had uh, a bunch of people who did not. Uh, had the opportunity to vote in Hartford early in the morning because uh, the voter rolls uh, hadn't gotten out to the polling places. And, you know, obviously for somebody who's planning to vote before they go to work and they get there and uh, they're unable to do it, uh, that's frustrating. But the, the main thing I just want to emphasize is that we've got to make sure that uh, those folks have the chance to vote. And I want to encourage everybody who's listening uh, to not be deterred by uh, what was obviously an inconvenience. But, you know, our history is one of expanding the franchise. And uh, America's premised on everybody has an equal voice. Uh, and each successive generation, we've seen more people have the opportunity to vote. Unfortunately, uh, not everybody takes advantage of that opportunity. And, and when people get frustrated about government, part of the reason is because we tend to have low participation rates, especially during non-presidential elections. But you know, if you look at what we've been seeing over the last six years and the progress that we've been able to make from the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression till now, and the fact that people have health care who didn't have it before, people have jobs who didn't have it before, and young people are able to go to college uh, who maybe couldn't afford it before, all those things were based on the decisions of uh, people who were sent to Washington, and better decisions result in 
uh, you know, change on the ground. And if you don't vote, if you opt out, then uh, you're giving up your voice uh, in not just your future, but uh, your kids' futures. So, you know, turnout's high across Connecticut. This is going to be a close election. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm a strong supporter of uh, Governor Malloy, and I think he's done an outstanding job with a very difficult uh, set of challenges when he came into office. We know this is going to be a close election. Uh, I want everybody, though, to just make sure that they go to vote, uh, regardless of who you're supporting. And if you need more information, you can go to IWillVote.com about what your polling place is, and hopefully we'll have some updates in terms of those who uh, who had problems early this morning voting. Mr. President, do you see the governor's races in this election differently than you see the Senate races? Senate races are often so much about the map, right, uh, about yeah. which states are red and which states are blue, and you can pretty much predict a lot of them in advance. Governor's races seem to have different sets of issues. How do you see the governor's races this time, and how, do you see them differently from, than you see well, the Senate it's, 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 There's no doubt that when you look at the Senate races, it, uh, because of the fact that only the third, a third of the Senate is up at any uh, given time, it tends to be a little bit arbitrary uh, which seats are really going to be contested, which aren't. So, for example, in this election cycle, this is probably the worst possible group of states for Democrats uh, since Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, there are a lot of uh, states that are being contested where they're, you know, they just tend to tilt Republican. And Democrats are competitive, but uh, they tend to tilt that way. When it comes to governor's races, as you said, it's much more uh, about that state and uh, people's uh, you know, concerns about jobs and schools and education funding and uh, you know, the issues that are particular to that state. And what we're seeing actually is uh, out of the uh, dozen or so gubernatorial races around the country right now, they're all tied. And that probably speaks to uh, the fact that voters generally are frustrated with government. They know things have gotten better from where they were six years ago, but they don't see um, the kind of cooperation between Democrats and Republicans they'd like to see. The polarization's gotten worse. Uh, obviously, I have a strong opinion as to why that happened. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know that does that cynicism, I think, uh, is, is something that uh, we've got to fight against. And the argument that I made when I was in Connecticut, when I was in Bridgeport, and when I've uh, traveled around the country is you can't afford to be cynical. Now is precisely the time where uh, ordinary folks casting their ballots can help to break gridlock, send a message to their representatives, and make sure that uh, their views uh, are represented. Mr. President, I know you're, you have to go, and we appreciate your taking the time today. Uh, just one quick last question. Uh, this election is going to be over on Wednesday. Sunday night is uh, Bears-Packers. Uh, I'm a Packers fan. How do you see that game going? Well, if I'd known you were a Packers fan, I might not have called. But the uh, look, the fact is, the Bears had a bye week. They needed the bye week. Uh, we've we've got talent, but we used to be known for our defense, and uh, our defense has been a little little soft lately. So maybe they they tweet some things. Packers, you know, you've got uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the league, and uh, so I'm sure you're favored. But uh, I'm I'm going to hold out for the Bears. All right. In the meantime, I want to make sure that uh, everybody who's listening. Make sure to go vote. Uh, do not give away your power. Do not buy into the notion that it doesn't make a difference. It really does. Uh, I'd like to you know, make sure that people know that uh, Dan Malloy has been 
uh, I believe, a really effective governor who cares about working families. Uh, and I think he not only deserves four more years, but I think if you care about things like education funding, if you care about things like uh, helping young people go to college, if you care about uh, making sure that uh, we're keeping our seats, uh, streets safe, you know, Dan's the guy who's going to uh, be able to make that happen. But no matter what your voting preference, get out there and vote. Don't be discouraged, Hartford, if you had some problems this morning. You need to go back and cast your vote. Well, they're going to court right now, Mr. President, to see if they can get an extra hour or so added to the election day. In your view, is that the system working if a court order adds time to the end of the election day? Yeah, my general view is we should make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to vote. Uh, You know, this, this idea that somehow we should be restrictive in who gets a chance to go to the polls. If they are a U.S. citizen and they are qualified to vote, then we should not be discouraging them from voting. Uh, You you have countries where there's mandatory voting, where you have 80 or 90 percent turnout. Uh, Historically, these midterm elections, we get turnout in the 30s, which ends up meaning that uh, whoever wins that contest uh, got maybe 15 percent of the eligible voters' votes. Uh, That's not the way our democracy is supposed to work. So, you know, Take the time to go out and vote. It, it's, it's something that is part of our civic obligations. And our founding fathers and subsequent generations fought for that franchise. It matters in terms of day-to-day how kids are going to be able to learn and whether jobs are created and whether we're protecting the environment. There are big issues at stake. Don't leave it to somebody else. Make sure to go to the polls. Mr. Right. President, thank you so much for joining us today. Call anytime. Uh, and <laughs> really appreciate it. I look forward to it, and uh, and I'll I'll uh, I'll be rooting for my Bears. All right, go Packers. Bye bye okay. now. Bye bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, uh, and when we come back, we're going to go back to just like normal, like nothing just happened here. <laughs> anyway, let's take that break, and we'll come back. Yeah, good morning. Today we're going to talk about social studies, right? So I need y'all to I'm take out, out a pen and a piece of paper and take story. Okay, so that happened. Um Actually, when they called up earlier today, uh, you know, to the White House uh, to talk about this, I said, you know, I don't he, I, I guess he can come on. But I've got James Ward on. He's a student at Watkinson School. It's the first time he's ever voted. So keep it short. All right. Because I want to have time to talk to James Ward. And uh, the president was reasonably good about that. And now James Ward can say that he was on the same show with President Obama. James Ward, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Today is your, your first opportunity as a citizen to vote. Uh, yeah, I'm planning on heading out to the polls as soon as I get out of school today, so that's exciting. Yeah, and as we talk here about social studies curriculum, um, I mean, to what degree does the preparation that you get in school affect how you think about your franchise, how you think about the chance to vote? Is that something you learn about in school or, or learn to think about in school, or does that come from somewhere else? Well, I mean, there have certainly been classes that have been offered uh, here at Washington and also in public school that are sort of like civic engagement classes that teach you about the voting process um, and such. Uh, and and I think that's good. But with all those, uh, but I I, I think the, what's most motivated me to sort of be politically involved and be interested in politics is learning about 
the actual issues rather than like what the, pro, the how Congress functions. Um, because kids can figure out how to vote for um, the, the representatives. The, the, the eighteen-year-olds can figure out how to do that. But when you learn uh, details behind major issues that kids know about, like income inequality or immigration reform, or blah 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 blah, that knowing about those issues is what I think is the actual motivation to going out and actually voting. So pick one of those things or something else that really energized you at school this year or at, at school as a student uh, of Chris Doyle. And, and just sort of tell me how that worked for you. Tell, tell me a story of something that you wound up excited about or caring about. Well, like this year we read um, in Mr. Doyle's class, we read readings by Thomas Piketty, uh, who wrote this book about uh, income inequality called Capitalism in the 21st Century that's really buzzy right now. Um, and so uh, a great many kids are aware of the problems of wealth inequality. It's not exactly about income inequality. It's about wealth inequality as a whole. Um, and Piketty's work is political you know it's clearly has a political side and not everyone in not all, all my friends and fellow students agree with Piketty but I think that reading something like that that is clearly has a political that is clearly espousing a political belief that's helpful like even if you don't agree with what you're reading what you're learning about then then that still motivates you to go out and vote about uh, on things like higher taxes which is clearly directly related to that well, first of all, James, I, I want to say that you now occupy the one in an 80 to 1 ratio of people who have held that book in their hands to people who have actually read any of it. Um, so that's just another way that you're special today. But let me ask you one more question, and then I'm going to kind of throw it out to the other panelists here. So I'm also wondering how typical uh, you feel of, uh, I mean, this is a whole highly unfair question. How typical you feel of your generation? I mean, one of the things we are constantly told, and it almost doesn't matter which generation we're talking about, is that apathy is rampant. It's worse than ever. People, you know, millennials or, or whoever feel less engaged from this process, less invited into it than ever. You obviously are pretty engaged right now. I don't know whether you feel like an outlier or are part of a generational thrust. Um, I mean, I... I, feel, I do feel like an outlier in some ways, but at Watkinson, I think kids, there's more political engagement than at public school. But I think that kids, plenty of kids care about things. Um, and, and there's sort of this idea that, oh, kids don't care about politics. But kids care about things. But there's sort of this idea that, oh, well, government doesn't work, democracy failed, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then they're not motivated to actually go out and do things. But if so, so I, I think that needs to be addressed. You need to, like, kids, we need to be told, like, no, you do have a voice. If you have a vote, you have a voice, and politicians have to listen to you. Let me go over to John Tully on that for a second. We're going to be talking towards the end of the show about this new framework for social studies, and I know that it does include you know, the notion, for example, of taking action, you know, uh, of, but uh, let's, before we even get to taking action, can we talk a little bit about this? First of all, is apathy seen as an enemy as you formulate a curriculum? Is, is the notion th that you have a duty to, to create more James Wards, more peop young people who feel in some way engaged in the process, is that identified as a goal? Uh, 
educating citizens is an important part of what of what public education is about, and it certainly it forms in, in many ways the core of what social studies education is meant to do. And, and I think James has it exactly right. If you if social studies is taught in a way of you know he, here's the number of representatives there are, and here's the number of senators, and memorize all that, that automatically begins to turn people off. And I'm sure many of your listeners are out there saying, you know, my high school history, you know, hopefully there's not many, but there, I'm sure there are. That say, you know, I didn't like my high school history class. It was names and dates. It was memorizing things. The issue of, uh, of getting to issues, of asking questions, of having students begin to, to uh, practice that process of being a citizen uh, at every grade level uh, from, from, the, from elementary school on, encourages them and and gives them examples that they can work with that they can become active citizens when they move on and begin to be able to vote. Um, Walt Woodward, you've seen a lot of fashions and trends come and go, come and go in, the, in the teaching of history. And, and I'm wondering how you react to this. I mean, this conversation about apathy is an old one, although it's not an eternal one. I mean, if you visited Connecticut on Election Day around 1900, you would have seen a, a, a pretty wild and highly engaged place. To what degree do you see apathy as the primary uh, obstacle to overcome? I think for many students today, apathy is in fact... It's endemic in in young people. And I think part of that goes to it can be traced to two things. We have marginalized social studies in schools under the present system. They've been so marginalized we didn't have a social studies person at the Board of Education for the past five years. And at the same time, the politics that student witness on TV every election cycle is politics that essentially goes like this. My opponent is the spawn of Satan. Well, guess what? My opponent is the illegitimate spawn of Satan. (laughs) So they are completely alienated from a process that seems totally, uh, totally meaningless to them and pretty, pretty distasteful. What the new – this is why I think John and I and everyone are really excited about the new approach to social studies embedded in these frameworks – is we are going to help students model the kind of debate and the kind of political give and take that many of us grew up with and wonder where it went. And we hope to bring it back by creating a group of students who see that as an expectation for political discourse. You know, uh, Chris Doyle has to go in just a few minutes. I think today's the day they have uh, Dexter Filkins uh, uh, on the campus there at Watkinson School. Talk about an exciting, engaging day for James Ward and and Chris Doyle. But before he goes, in the spirit of Dexter Filkins, I'll see if I can get him to uh, kick a tripwire or step on an explosive device uh, when it comes to this topic. So, Chris Doyle, you, you alluded to the fact you've worked in both environments. You taught public school, uh, and now you're teaching private school. To a certain degree, and, and stop me when I'm, uh, you disagree, to a certain degree there's been kind of a notion in public school curriculum that, yes, you're in the business of teaching history, you're in the business of teaching civics, but there's a sort of a patriotic implication too, right? You're basically in the business of teaching the American experiment as a good experiment, a good model, uh, a city on a hill, a shining beacon to, to everywhere else. To what degree did you feel empowered uh, in, in the public school sector to ask the kinds of questions about American exceptionalism that I'm guessing you feel inclined to ask? Well, that's uh, what, well, yeah, I guess you probably did set me up to step on a landmark. <laughs> well, you can just hang up. You can, you can hang up uh, right now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> look, you know, what I can say is um, 
uh, I think I did my best teaching um, when I had some room to run downfield without without obstruction. Um, and uh, there's there's pressure beyond just teaching a patriotic narrative. There's there's testing pressure. Uh, there's there's you know Farmington High where I last taught in public schools. Each class period is only 42 minutes long. You know so. Try teaching something meaningful by the time the bell rings and you take attendance in about 38 minutes. But um, I think when I've had my most, my, my best success is uh, following up on, on James' words. I've, I've allowed kids a voice in the classroom, and I've taken their ideas seriously. Uh, I really prefer a kind of seminar style where student discussion drives a lot of the action. And I, I do want to try to complicate whatever the official narrative is. And that, that narrative could be a left-wing Howard Zinn narrative that I would complicate by, by arguing from a completely opposite ideological point. I think you, you want in the classroom <clears throat> the widest variety of ideas possible, and you want kids to have to break it down and analyze it and come up with their own conclusions about what it all means. And so any narrowing, constraining influences in a classroom environment tend to be bad. So ultimately, I, I think I speak for intellectual freedom and freedom for kids to, to wrestle with this stuff themselves. All right. Uh, we, I know we know you have to go. I just want to say Matt DiRienzo just tweeted, just another day on the Colin McEnroe show, President Obama talking about the Chicago Bears and then a high school student talk, talking about Thomas Piketty. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, so thanks. Thanks, Watkinson people, for being a part of all that. Uh, we'll take a little break. We're going to come back with just uh, uh, our two in-studio guests to talk, in fact, about the next curriculum, the next way that social studies will be taught uh, in Connecticut. Possibly, maybe, after this. Class, can anybody tell me what the Boston Massacre was? Well, in 1770, friction between British troops and angry crowds protesting the Townsend Acts boiled over. The troops fired into a rioting crowd and killed five men. What planet are you on? The Boston Massacre was caused by crowds rioting when the moon landing was faked. What have people been telling you? Are you sure you're the social studies substitute teacher for today? What happened to Mr. Hardman? You know what's killing social studies? Nosy kids asking too many questions. Now... Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are the Knights Who Say Knee, Josh Nalea and Nia Tyler. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. And the part of Bill Curry was played by President Obama. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's ballot, writing in Mario Batali, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, how the nation looks on the day after. And now... Back to Colin. By the way, just to reinforce that idea, yes, tonight we will be on the air starting at 7 o'clock with election coverage and analysis. John Dankosky and I will be uh, live at Real Airways. That's unless, if President Obama calls me up and says, you know, you want to just come and hang with me and watch the results? 
then I, John might have to do this by himself. Uh, I, I may not be available you know, under those circumstances. But barring that, yes, we're going to have uh, uh, Bill Curry. We're going to have Mark Boughton making his debut as a Republican political anal- analyst, uh, Kalila Brown-Dean, all kinds of great people for you. Chris Murphy's dropping by. I don't know, all kinds of people. So come to Real Art Ways or tune us, on, tune us in at 7 o'clock uh, tonight for that. So um, in our final segment here, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the current conversation. And it's so current that John Tully, uh, I believe, is heading towards a meeting tomorrow uh, at which uh, important things will be decided. And, and so, John Tully, I, I think I don't want to waste our time too much or use up too much of our time getting buried in educational bureaucrat- bureaucraties about Common Core and the framework and the this and the that. But is there a way just sort of in normal language without talking about going into other dimensions, which is actually something that is contemplated in the framework, which I, I found frightening, um, in, in just sort of plain uh, language, what is it we want to do that we're not doing right now uh, in, in the teaching of social studies? We want to move ahead with this notion that, that effective social studies education, social studies which is going to motivate students, social studies which is going to help them retain the information they need, something which, go, which is going to give them the, the skills and resources to be effective citizens in the 21st century, that that kind of education happens and as a result of inquiry. It's a result of students practicing, asking questions themselves, answering questions, looking at evidence, and then making some conclusions about what that is. So, so I mean, mostly, you know, I probably could have gotten somebody to say that 20 years ago, more or less, you know, but they, they might have meant something different. So maybe give me a case study. Give me an example. How, how uh, you will you pick it out? I could pick something out, but you pick it out. Well, you know, we can go back to the, to the civil rights movement uh, that, that we talked about earlier. You know, a, a lot of teachers do that, that kind of uh, the standard set. You know, we'll go from Rosa Parks, we'll go to the, um, to the Civil Rights Act, and then that's what civil rights is about. What we're trying to do is to have students begin to ask deeper questions and have, have teachers explore deeper questions about the legacy of how the past is with us. And that involves um, then coming up with the compelling questions that reflect what's happening today in many ways and then looking at the historical background and doing it also through the lens of, of civics and geography and economics so that it becomes a, a more complete way of trying to figure out where we are today because if you have an understanding of how we got to where we are today, then you can begin to make decisions about where we want to move in the future. So, Walter, yeah, go ahead. What were you yeah, say? if I can jump in on John's example, using civil rights as a, as a lens for this inquiry-based learning. One of, the, one of the really important things in the new frameworks to me is that there is a, a mandate that when you teach national history, you do it through the lens as much as possible of Connecticut examples. So I can imagine in this situation, students studying the civil rights movement would actually read the letters written by Martin Luther King when he worked in the tobacco fields mm-hmm. in Simsbury. They would in, they, they'd look at it and see how his experience of black and white relations in the North differed so much from the South and begin to ask questions about what that meant and how that shaped his future. This connecting the history of places far away to the experience of right where you live is one of the most dramatic and important parts of these new frameworks. Well, John, let me just follow up on what Walter's saying. And just uh, I, I, like most people of my age, I went through school 
reading textbooks, and textbooks are pretty cherry-picked. I mean, even, even if they're cherry-picked with the absolute best intentions or the most equitable intentions, they're still cherry-picked. They are a distillation of various things. Whereas when I got to college, one of the first things I did in a history course was take history courses where, as a project, there were these huge document dumps uh, of of recently declassified materials or John Brown, all of John Brown's papers or whatever. And, and we were asked to make sense of this on our own, which is a radically different experience. <laughs> I mean, I went through all of the papers that were available having to do with the decision to drop the atomic bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It changed my whole life doing that. And I guess that's sort of what you're talking about, too, is, okay, here's the stuff. You figure it out. Yeah. Along with the expert guidance of teachers who understand the process of of looking at documents and pulling it through. There's a great book by Sam Weinberg who's doing great work out of Stanford, uh, Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts. The process of looking at a document, looking at sources, trying to figure out who how this was created, what the audience was, with the hands of a skillful social studies teacher to help students begin to understand that process, that's, the, that's the, a skill and a process which goes well beyond the four walls of the classroom. That's what we need to do to make sense of our everyday life. That's what you need to be, the skills you need to be a good citizen. It, it's the skills you need to, to function in today's economy. It, it's exactly what can excite students in a way that they can see history as something that we do to the past in the present. History is not the past. It's what we it's the arguments that we make about the past and the present. It's the stories we tell about the past. And that process of seeing social studies as happening in that classroom and not just remembering something that other people did is a way to uh, expand people's minds and, and a way to have them begin to, to see their own possibility of where they fit into this world and what world they want the, to fit into. Of course, the other aspect of this is, um, Walter, uh, is – uh, every time you're teacher-led, even if you're working with raw materials, you, you've got – I mean, you have your own vision uh, as a historian of who Thomas Jefferson was or maybe more relevantly who Jonathan Trumbull was uh, or who Israel Putnam was or whatever. So so there's that too, right? I mean – Nathan Hale too. Don't forget Nathan Hale. <laughs> you and I both have our own different ideas about Nathan Hale. So there you go. So, so that's a factor too. To, and ideally, you want the teacher, I think under John's vision, to have as little – shaping impact on that process of making sense as as possible without completely abdicating your pedagogical responsibilities. Well, this is really important, and this is one of the, the things I very much respected about Chris Doyle's comments on how he teaches. No one becomes a teacher to get rich. They do become teachers because they think educating young people is critical for the future, and you bet every person who teaches has a view of the world that they think is important. But a really effective social studies teacher recognizes that it's the ability to analyze competing and complex arguments that makes someone a good and engaged citizen. And sometimes you put your biases aside and you have to respect arguments that you disagree with as long as they're well argued. And that's going to be the part of the new frameworks where – Teachers and individual school districts have to hold teachers accountable because there are some teachers who want to teach their view of what – they want to teach what's right rather than how to think and how to evaluate things. Exactly. But frameworks can't solve that problem. 
They can, however, create environments where the opposite, where the engagement happens. I would just like to say that my fifth grade teacher uh, told us that uh, the Russians landed their space capsules on land instead of in the ocean because they didn't care whether their astronauts lived or died. I, it was much later that I found out they just had the technology to do it, and we actually <laughs> did not want to land capsules in the water. It's not even the right term, I guess, land capsules in the water, but uh, you lose capsules and people like us christen that way. It's not great. So, uh, you know, but so there's life is kind of a long corrective process and, and, and maybe we'll come to that in a second. But so John Telly, in a way, and I don't know how much of this is in the framework, in a way, this argues for a process that's student led as much as possible. Is, is that part of of your understanding of what we're going to try to do here in this next iteration? It's certainly one of the ultimate goals of the new framework. Uh, you know, this process, this inquiry arc, which, which the new framework talks about, is, um, is designed to have these compelling questions. In some ways, early on, as students are practicing this, that will be a teacher-led question. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to have students begin to say, you know, here's what this aspect of the past or here's this aspect of civics or economics or geography that I want to learn about, that we want to learn about. And then the teacher helping them with the skills to find that information, evaluate the relevance and the quality of that information, and then to come up with their conclusions and then uh, take some what, what the framework is calling informed action, which is basically practicing being a public citizen, uh, you know, tweeting about what they did, um, going to the local school board and making a presentation, uh, creating a website. Those elements of, of communicating to the wider public what they've been able to, to pull through and, and the practice of doing that will help them become better citizens and, and more likely to do that when they turn 18. So in other words, when you say inquiry-led, I mean, you gave the example before with the uh, civil rights. I assume that it's that kind of, or the in- inquiry arc, excuse me, right. would be, you know, what was the American Revolution really about? And then kind of allow the students to begin to make sense of that. Right. What we offer in the framework is a series of compelling questions and supporting questions. So so large questions that will uh, allow students to kind of see uh, that the process of gaining the going through the content, learning the information, is hooked onto something that's more important. The content is important because it helps us answer a big question. And then the series of learning that content is a process of answering a series of, of smaller questions that get to that bigger issue. That inherent curiosity is what's going to help uh, students see what they're doing is important and help them retain the information so that they can use it to, uh, to move forward. Although, Walter, so much of this means that all of us have to fight our natural disposition to kind of achieve these angles of repose about knowledge. You know, I mean, uh, you know, y- even the way we frame it, frame it you, you, you need to learn something. Uh, and... and I don't know. I mean, I, even just to pick the example I began, began with, my view of Thomas Jefferson changes all the time. Right. Uh, and, and even on to the point of Thomas Jefferson's view, view about the purpose of civic education, I've for 14 years been citing this as this visionary ideal, you know, that Jefferson thought the public schools should uh, train citizens to better resist the depredation of, uh, of tyrants and, and stuff like that. You know, reading him a little bit more closely and reading Thomas uh, Michael Schutzen's book, The Good Citizen, I'm seeing, well, you know, Jefferson had this kind of aristocratic idea about who really should be running yeah. this country. Right. It's more like you're, you should be trained to to uh, recognize the difference between good aristocrats and bad <laughs> aristocrats, right? Yeah, so right. part of it is we have to give up our, our desire for stasis. Well, what, what, what education is about, and I, I came to realize this early as a professor, it's not as much about learning as it is about curiosity. Learning follows curiosity. 
And what a good teacher does is stimulate, provokes, and engages your own curiosity about something. If you are curious, you'll do the work of learning. And if someone else tries to make you do the learning without stimulating your curiosity, it's dead on arrival. So I really think that a good social studies classroom will be a constant stimulus to real curiosity, and, it'll, and it, will, it will engage the students in expressing the results of that inquiry. You know, John, we only have a couple of minutes left, but, uh, and this is a four-hour conversation I'm about to inaugurate here, but um, that argues for a different kind of testing, too. You know, I mean, exactly. if, if all I have to do is reproduce the right answers, the answer Mr. Tolley told me, right. you know, well, I mean, that's a pretty obvious transaction. If I have to be able to think about stuff and maybe even come up with an answer that would be unsettling, to Professor Tully, well, that's a whole different thing. And how, how do you test for that? Right. That, that's one of the elements uh, of getting students to, to understand the difference or, or to use the difference between knowing something and understanding something. If you understand something about the past, if you understand something about a big theme and how to analyze uh, the past, then you can apply that in different areas. Uh, that, that skill, those skills are transferable. And I always tell my students who are going to go on to be middle school and high school teachers that part of their job is to complicate the lives of their students, mm. uh, to, 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 to instill some gray areas where there was black and white, to, to have their students question things that they, maybe they thought they knew from whatever reason, wherever they got it. And then in the process of assessing that, that can't be a multiple choice test. That can't be a fill in the essay. That has to be something much more creative. And we're in the process of trying to figure out what that is. You know, we have some ideas, but we need to do more of that. I mean, when I was in college, the vogue for oral exams came back in. And those were really great, except that I had never been prepared for that. I was, oh, I'd been prepared right. my whole life to regurgitate the answers that Professor Woodward wanted. Uh, and so I didn't know how to have a conversation right. with anybody. No, and, and if, we have our, if we have our students, you know, if, if they're looking at political cartoons and they're analyzing political cartoons, then, then there's room to put a new political cartoon on that test, right, on, on the, the, that they didn't look at before. And right. what is the process of doing that? And then they can – once they, they, they practice that – they can begin to look at a lot of different things differently, and it's not spitting back what the teacher said. All right, we have to stop now. This has been a fascinating conversation with me in studio, Walter Woodward. He is our uh, Connecticut State historian and professor of history at UConn, University of Connecticut. No, it's UConn now. I keep getting it mixed up. John Tully is professor of history and social studies coordinator at Central Connecticut State University and president of the Connecticut Council uh, for Social Studies. Uh, we would also like to thank – who's that other guy we had on? Uh, Bar- B- president Barack Obama. That's who he was. Uh, we'd like to thank him for joining us today. Chris Doyle also and James Ward from Watkins. And, hey, uh, join us tonight uh, at Real Art Ways. We'll have a great panel for you. If you can't get to Real Art Ways, just turn on the radio or stream us online. We'll be covering this stuff all night long unless I have to go hang out with President Obama, in which case it'll just be John Dankowski. Back to America, what's our song? The Star Spangled Banner, don't get that wrong. That's our national anthem. Oh, say, can you see? You know the words, we're a democracy. That means you can vote your way. Hope you learned some social studies today. Hey, 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 here we go. Let's stomp it out. Stomp, 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 stomp. Stomp, stomp, stomp. Stomp, stomp, stomp. For social studies is what I need to know. Stomp.